Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks. Me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Like most of us out there among the living, I'm trying not to find myself headed into an utter darkness filled with sadness. With the recent tragic current events taking place in the world, now is not the time to go silent. Black lives matter, and all of us need to keep the momentum going to ensure that positive change is ahead. Even if you are not able to make it out to a protest or gathering, try to help out any way that you can by supporting Black artists and creators, making donations to organizations, or purchasing from Black-owned businesses. Even the little things we do can have an impact towards change. I recently made quite a number of book purchases from a local Black female-owned bookstore here in Philadelphia, Harriet's Bookshop. As I have found upon my own self-reflection, I have much learning to do. We have to stay strong and fight for what's right. Stay safe out there, everyone, and remember to take the time to do some contemplation yourself. I am sure when you put your mind to it, there is something all of us need to do better. I recently finished the Vampira book that I mentioned on a previous episode, Dark Goddess of Horror by Scott Poole, and while I quite enjoyed it overall, I was really hoping to learn more about Mela Nermi's life, as well as the history and creation of the horror host character. Therefore, my research continues. I plan to next watch the Ray Green 2012 documentary Vampira and Me, which is streaming now on Canopy. All you need is a library card to access the platform. Don't fret, goblins and ghouls. I shall report back with my findings. In the meantime, if any of my fellow crypt dwellers have a line on any great books or other flicks about Vampyra, let me know. My inbox is open and ready to receive your messages at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step, 
as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. Today I shall be prying open the coffin of Hollywood's screwball comedy queen, Carol Lombard, and uncovering the 1933 pre-code horror, Supernatural. You may recall from a previous Crypt episode, pre-code refers to an era specifically in the American film industry in which movie content was not as restricted. Films in the late 1920s and early 30s depicted or implied much content that would later be censored. Hey, they couldn't have ladies witnessing strong female characters on screen and getting any ideas. Ugh. Anyways, this black and white beauty was directed by Victor Halpern, who also served as a producer on the film with his brother, Edward. If their names sound familiar, you may recognize them from another great picture of around this time, White Zombie, starring the famed Bela Lugosi. This independent picture was released in 1932, a year prior to the release of Supernatural. In fact, when Supernatural opened in 1933, White Zombie was actually still playing in some theaters. Paramount Studios had wanted to enter the horror game when they agreed to make Supernatural. With the Halpern brothers' success of White Zombie, Paramount called on them to make the picture. The brothers were offered a deal with Paramount that would bring access to better equipment and the means to create more elaborate sets than they experienced previously with White Zombie's minuscule independent budget. Much of the production crew from White Zombie assisted the brothers on set of Supernatural. This included screenwriter Garnett Weston, cinematographer Arthur Martinelli, and Oliver Lodge as technical director. The Halperns had wanted to cast Madge Bellemi in the lead role of Roma Courtney. Madge had played the starring role in White Zombie as Madeline Short Parker. Paramount had other plans, though. They wanted the lead role to be someone that could play a Jekyll and Hyde of sorts, but without the makeup. An actor that would be able to switch back easily between personalities. So they called on Carol Lombard. Carol was born as Jane Alice Peters in Fort Wayne, Indiana on October 6, 1908. Her life was cut tragically short when she died in a plane crash at the mere age of 33 years old in January 1942. Despite her short time among the living, she managed to rack up 78 film credits and was the highest paid star in Hollywood in the late 1930s. Prior to her work in Supernatural, Carol had previously been in comedies, romance stories, or dramas, and had not dabbled in the wild world of horror. With her role in Supernatural as Roma Courtney, audiences were for the first time exposed to her dark side. This would inevitably be the only horror picture she would make. Much like her co-star, Randolph Scott, she had not yet found her footing in La La Land. He would eventually find his niche making action-and-adventure western-type flicks, while she would later go on to make the epitome of the screwball comedy genre flicks such as My Man Godfrey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Nothing Sacred, and her last picture in 1942, To Be or Not To Be. I have not seen her last film yet, 
But in doing some research for the episode, I did learn that the movie was in post-production when she passed away, and that producers decided to leave out a part that her character ironically said, what can happen in a plane? I always find stories such as this so eerily fascinating, for life is filled with little haunting coincidences. According to Madge Bellamy, Lombard really did not care for her role in Supernatural. Apparently, in reading the script, Carol had fought tooth and nail requesting to be recast. It was only the threat of suspension from Paramount that kept her walking the line. Well, kinda. During the production, Lombard had several heated confrontations with director Victor Halpern. Something I found interesting in learning about the picture was that Carol had made it a point of learning the technical side of filmmaking, which may have caused some ruffled feathers on sets, especially since she often knew more about camera work and lighting than some of her directors. Some of this interest in film work was due to a scar that was on Carol's left cheek that she received after a windshield shattered from a car accident that occurred in 1926. After the accident, Fox Studios dropped Carol from her contract, and this, of course, made the film star sensitive to how she was lit and shot in movies. In watching Carol's films, there is no question of her beauty and elegance, but what may come as a surprise to some when looking back on her legacy is to learn of her fondness of indecent language. It is found that much of her foul-mouthed banter was shrugged off as her talent outshined the latter. However, Victor Halpern may have felt a bit differently on the whole matter as he often found himself a target for Carol's frustration and disappointment with the picture. Hollywood legend has it, Carol was heard remarking, who do I have to screw to get off this picture? In addition to some of Lombard's antics, filming was also set back when the Long Beach earthquake of 1933 struck, causing the cast and crew to run screaming in fright from the set. Despite all this, the film got made. Seriously, though, I dare you to try to find a film production without a little tomfoolery. Fellow crypt dwellers, it is now time to talk about seances. The practice of communicating with spirits, which dates back to the late 1700s. Seance, for those that don't know, is a French word meaning session or to sit. Seances were one of the main plot points of the 1933 film Supernatural, specifically leader-assisted seances. This is the type of seance in which a medium is used and typically goes into a trance to allow the spirits to communicate utilizing their body to relay messages to the participants. The group will typically be seated in a dark or low-lit room as it was believed that spirits would often reside in the dark, in the shadows, making the removal of light necessary for those spirits to feel comfortable in revealing their form. Of course, over time, this style of seance was known for scandal as it would often reveal, much like in the film, Supernatural, that the leader was practicing stage magic. Essentially, a charlatan. Supernatural opens with an amazing title code sequence, 
Electrifying letters hit the screen and crashes of lightning are heard and raging sea roars on in the background. The music is haunting, yet unnerving. Dare I say, irritatingly haunting. I absolutely love the font on the title cards though. So damn cool. During the title sequence, a series of religious quotes are shown, all essentially commenting their belief in the afterlife. I was especially fond of this one. Treat all supernatural beings with respect, but keep aloof from them, said by Confucius. In conducting my research, I learned that the Halpern brothers went to seances to best understand what they were like. At the time, many Hollywood pictures had a focus on occultism, as there were many audience members interested in the topic. From the title card sequence, the story starts with a fever pitch. We cut to a newspaper headline stating, Rosian killed men that loved her. It goes on to say, killed three lovers after a riotous orgy in her sensuous Greenwich Village apartment. Newspaper clippings are superimposed with the killer, Ruth Rogen. Quick cuts of her in court, her murderous hands, menacing eyes, and lastly, the prison bars that would now confine her. All while audio of her maniacal laughter and testimony play in the background to make for a rather creepy and unsettling sequence. He's lying. I'll kill him. me too. I'd do it again, and again, and again. <laughs> A few things to note here. There is no film editor credited on this movie. Despite some of the impressive transitional cuts that are used within the opening of the flick, it's kind of surprising. This method of superimposing the clips and quick cuts were time-saving methods utilized by the Halpern brothers, which accounts for the mere 64-minute runtime. It is important to call attention to the character, Ruth Rogen, as this movie was one of the first to portray a female serial killer, which would account to the pre-code era in which the production was made. This would also be the reason for including such a sexual tone to the murders themselves. At the end of Ruth's trial, it is determined that she will be executed via the electric chair. I suppose the title cards in the beginning make sense now, huh? Dr. Carl Houston, played by H.B. Warner, has plans for her body, though. But what do you want of her body after the execution? I've been experimenting lately with nitrogenic rays. What are they? ultraviolet rays given off by the body. Now, if my experiments are correct, I might be able to prevent her personality from escaping after death and committing other crimes. Dr. Houston believes that for some, their spirit is so strong, so powerful, that after they are deceased, the will of their spirit can live on and therefore possess another body. To help prove his theory to the warden, he uses the example of copycat crimes, in which after a person commits a crime and dies, a similar crime will happen again later. By taking Ruth's body and conducting his experiments in his laboratory, he hopes to stop this from happening and prove his theory correct. They approach Ruth, 
who initially is apprehensive, but through some contemplation, realizes she obviously does not have much else better prospects at this point. Plus, the good doctor said it may lead to another chance. Another chance to use her hands. The only thing she is going for her now is awaiting a return correspondence to a letter she sent off to some guy. If I could use my hands, if I could use my hands just for a few minutes. You have nothing to lose, Ruth. No, I have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. I'll send you a paper to sign. <laughs> As her execution nears, we learn of a mystery man, the man in which Ruth was attempting to contact, Paul Bavian, a spiritualist, played by Alan Dinehart. This is also when Paul's pesky lush of a landlady is introduced. It appears she obtained the letter from Ruth requesting Paul's presence. When she attempts to deliver the letter to Paul, which she of corpse opened and read, we find Paul creating what appears to be a mask of sorts, a mold, and yet another news clipping regarding the death of a millionaire, John Courtney, whose fortune now falls to his twin, Roma Courtney, who's played by Carol Lombard. Apparently, Paul Bavian had visited the casket of John Courtney with clay in tow in order to create a skin mask. Oh, don't fret. I shall get back to that yarn in a bit. His arts and crafts time is interrupted, though, when the landlady enters. What do you want? There's a letter for you. Why, it's been here the whole afternoon. It's from the poor creature. How do you know? The handwriting. At this point, the film is just at about the 15-minute mark, and already the story has laid out a murder, skin mask schemes, funerals, and potential lab experiments. This is wild, which is the perfect time to enter Carol Lombard, Roma Courtney. Roma is introduced, entering a lavish, darkened mansion after her late brother's funeral. She proceeds to his bedroom, where she is greeted by his doggo, which for me was one of the most heartbreaking scenes. The doggo retrieving the shoes of her late brother John and setting them by what is obviously his former chair. While listening to an old recording, Roma is interrupted by the maid, who provides her with a letter from Paul Vavian, stating, Miss Roma Courtney, last night the spirit of your brother John came through very clearly. He seems in great distress and urgently requested me to summon you. Will you not let me arrange a seance and give him an opportunity to speak with you himself? Sincerely, Paul Bavian, spiritualist. Meanwhile, Dr. Houston is also at the Courtney's estate, and there is a discussion of Ruth Rogen's final moments. This paper says you were at the execution of that Rogen woman this morning. I was. Says she insisted you walk to the death chamber with her. Guess she had a crush on you. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't meet sooner, eh, Doc? <laughs> Tell me, Doctor, was she really crazy? Grant, I believe she was quite sane. But undoubtedly one of the most dangerous women in criminal history. Well, she's not dangerous anymore. No? 
She may be more dangerous now than when they had her locked in a cell. Oh, now listen, Doc. That's too much. Oh, hello, Roma. What's this? The letter from the great spiritualist is shared with the doctor and a family friend, Mr. Hammond, who is assisting with the estate. And he immediately claims of Bavian being a vulture just after the money, claiming he is a fraud. What I enjoyed about this scene is that, yes, Mr. Hammond may have a point, but the doctor reminds him, life does indeed go on, but not in the same way. Of course, Mr. Hammond is having none of it and contacts the great spiritualist, calling him a baboon. Roma, I would say, is desperate, though, and much like Fox Mulder, she wants to believe. Grant, I've been thinking uh, about that letter. Uh, you heard what Nick and the doctor said. Dr. Houston said there was an afterlife. I'm going to that medium. Roma, you're only making things harder for yourself. I don't care. Will you go with me? Of course I will. This leads to one of my other favorite scenes, in which we witness Paul Bavian setting up for the show, ensuring all of his gimmicks and tricks and flim-flam are prepared. Of course, he is interrupted by who else but his nosy landlady checking in. I know all about Miss Courtney. Poor thing. With all her sorrow, she doesn't know what she's doing. I think I ought to tell her, as one woman to another. She's got a lot of money. She'll never miss it. How much are you going to get? Enough for both of us? Hey, dearie? So you're going to try a blackmail, huh? Now, is that nice? Blackmail? Oh, no, dearie. I wouldn't do anything dishonest. With all I know about you, I wouldn't tell the police. We're partners. <laughs> partners, eh? The two shake hands, which inevitably leads to her demise. For the ring the great spiritualist was donning pricked her. A poison ring, unlike anything I have ever seen. With my creature hands, I have never had a fondness of shaking hands. But after witnessing the landlady's death? The act of shaking hands is completely dead to me. Roma is joined at the seance by her skeptic friend, Grant Wilson, played by Randolph Scott, who I shall refer to only as Randolph Scott going forward. Because, well, I like the name better than Grant. Now, wait a minute. Wait just one doggone minute here. Just give me 24 hours to come up with a brilliant idea to save our town. Just 24 hours. That's all I ask. No! You do it for Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott. All right, Sheriff. 24 hours. Okay, lights out. Trance time. This scene is absolutely great. When Paul Bavian asks the non-believer, Randolph Scott, to turn out the lights, he decides to leave one on. But don't worry, the floating hand took care of it. I love when severed hands make an appearance in films and actively do things. The skin mask also makes an appearance with a serious accusation. Roma! Roma! 
God wants our money. He murdered me. You are next. John! John! Wow, that's quite the development. Well, Roma and Randolph skedaddle. Despite the terrible rainstorm, they must see Dr. Houston immediately. So they head to his apartment, which is one of the raddest apartments ever because his living room opens up into a laboratory. Talk about a great conversation starter at dinner parties. After drinks, imagine it. Won't you join me in my lab? I would like to conduct a few experiments. No need to be scared. When they walk into the laboratory, they find who else? Ruth Rogen, sitting up in a chair. Lightning strikes, wind blows open the windows, and the doctor dashes in. Roma grabs her throat. The spirit. What are those marks? Ruth Rogen. She tried to get possession of Roma's body. Thank him she failed. Well, at this point, there is only one thing left to do. With the encouragement of Dr. Houston, they decide to hold another seance. But this time, they shall invite Paul Babian to the Courtney home. The time is set for 8 p.m., and Paul remarks that he'll be there. He fills his poison ring, and upon arrival, explains the types of seances. Thank you. Now the contact is completed. As you know, spirit communication may take any one of many forms. Levitation, moving lights, voices, raps, materialization, or automatic writing. In automatic writing, the medium himself, while in a trance, writes the message. Consequently, this method may be open to question. Independent writing, the message is received independently of the medium. Consequently, tonight, we will experiment by this means. But I warn you again, I promise you nothing. The invisible that you wish to hear from may not be able to reach me. But if I succeed, my reward lies in the knowledge that I have been of service to a gracious lady. The lights are dimmed. Mr. Vavian plays the piano to set the mood, when suddenly he passes out. This is when the real excitement begins. Roma once again grabs her neck. A message scrawls on a hanky that was thrown atop a crystal ball at the center of the table, proclaiming that Roma is in danger and that John was murdered by Hammond. A projection illuminates on the wall, the brother's face. Hammond is pricked by the poisonous ring when he lunges at Bavian. Roma passes out. Spiritual chaos. While passed out, this is when Ruth takes complete control over Roma's body, which is witnessed with a double exposure technique. This is also the moment when Carol Lombard's acting ability is on full display when she awakens as Ruth, the ruthless killer. I swear, you can almost see a new twinkle in Lombard's eyes, which the filmmakers do several close-ups of throughout the film, showing the change has occurred. Those close-ups were much like what was found in White Zombie on Bella's eyes and hands, or in Browning's 1931 Dracula, which one could suspect the idea came from. Within the trailer of Supernatural, there is even a mention of the flick having, and I quote, the tense weirdness of Dracula. From here, the story goes off the rails a bit as in what I feel they attempt to cram a hell of a lot into the last act of the film and kind of lose control of the story. Roma, who is now Ruth, 
leaves with the unbeknown spiritualist amidst the chaos of the dying Hammond. Bavian seems to be oblivious to Roma's possession, even after they make a pit stop at Ruth's old abode. Ruth was apparently an artist, and her apartment is filled with various art sculptures and paintings. A cloth hangs over one of the portraits, and Roma reveals it, explaining that her friend lived here, and they were her works. The portrait is revealed to be a self-portrait of Ruth as Eve. Yes, as in Adam and Eve. Ruth is suggestively cradling an apple, who, as Roma puts it, Ruth put fear in many men, especially one in particular, who called the police on her. This, of course, being Bavian. The landlord drops in, chasing them both away. And where shall they run? Well, to Roma's yacht, of course. Fortunately for Roma, Randolph Scott is hot on the trail, but not fast enough, in my opinion, as she has to endure necking from the great Bavian. One could say it is actually Ruth, since Roma is possessed. Why, Paul, what's the matter? For a moment when you did that, you made me think. I thought we weren't going to talk about her. Somehow everything that you do makes me think of her. You're still afraid of Ruth Rosen? No, at times I'm afraid of you. Afraid of me? Why did you ever take me to her place? How did you ever happen to know her? Why is it that sometimes you look like her? Answer me. Throughout this scene, it is understandable and unsurprising that Ruth is attempting to end the life of the great weaselly and paunchy spiritualist, Paul Bavian. She attempts to lure him with one last drink as he fidgets with his poisonous ring. Now do you recognize me? I am Ruth Rosen. I'm going to kill you before I leave this body you like so much. As the chaos ensues, Randolph Scott zooms in, Bavian escapes, and Ruth leaves Roma's body. And while Randolph consoles Roma, the filmmakers cut back to Bavian, who is attempting to get away, only to become twisted up in a rope on the yacht and his last scene dangling, dead. We cut back to Roma and Randolph. She has awoken as if it was all a bad dream until the spirit of John appears. The specter flips a magazine to an ad, and it reads, Go to Bermuda for Honeymoon. Another Hollywood magical marriage ending. Ta-da! Supernatural ended up not being as much of a financial success for the Halpern brothers that White Zombie was, and due to the film's sexual content, was not able to be aired on television at that time. The film would later go on to be sold to Universal for TV distribution, and Universal has since controlled the picture ever since. The reviews for the flick were also mixed, much of the film's problems being blamed on a half-baked script that could have used some more time in the oven. I personally love what they were going for, and I know that if I would have been around in the 1930s and saw the trailer with its proclamations, it might happen to any woman. Strange, terrifying, mysterious, invisible forces, with that vocal choir from the opening title sequence and the lightning crashing and the raging sea in the background, it's all magnificent 
and I would have been the first in line to buy a ticket. So even if you don't want to check out the entire movie, at least check out the trailer. It's available on the wild world of the internets. Although, with a movie that portrays a female serial killer, a black widow type who murders with her bare hands, contains the ideas of afterlife, seances, a ring used for transporting poison, and mediums, oh my, well you don't know what you're missing then. I think you better watch it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you do seek out Supernatural. I obtained a Blu-ray copy from Kino Lorber and I highly recommend it. It also includes a film commentary track from historian Tim Lucas, which I utilized in my research for this episode. Additionally, there was a great website entitled and you call yourself a scientist.com that had a great write-up about this film, which I found extremely helpful. I recommend checking out that site. It is deemed as a mad scientist's views on other mad scientists. One last thing about Carol. Lucille Ball once noted that she finally decided to go ahead with I Love Lucy when Carol, who had been a dear friend of hers, came to her in a dream and recommended she take the risk and make the leap to television. Ooh, spooky. And speaking of specters and haunts, in my next episode, I will be uncovering the grave of Rex Harrison to dissect and examine the 1947 film, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. I hope you tune in, as I will be sharing a special spooky treat with you goblins and ghouls, the premiere of a new segment here on Cinematic Crypt, A Trip to the Morgue. Let's all go to the In my trips to the morgue, I will be joined by the other half of the classic coroners, my cinematic pal, fellow Corpse Club founder, and paranormal enthusiast, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. During our visit together, we will slice open a character actor, an actor who specializes in playing eccentric or unusual people, rather than the leading role. The character corpse shall be selected from that episode's crypt film, and together we will perform an autopsy of their role in that flick. Essentially, we will be chatting corpses, and you don't want to miss it. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the show, like this one, from Martha Washington Brown. I cannot wait to see all the coffins overturned in this podcast. The host loves movies and knows her stuff. I love the idea and love the podcast. Movies. Oh, Martha, your favorite little gravedigger loves this comment and you. Thank you so much, dearie. Take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. So log into iTunes to leave your own review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt. 
Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. Our current issue features jetpacks, flying cars, and spaceships. Yes, that's right, the future. Does your future hold a mailbox filled with awesomeness? Visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe today as they are beginning to fly out into the universe. This issue features a few writings from your favorite little gravedigger and a crossword puzzle too, celebrating a former flick pick of the crypt, Frankenstein, 1970. Don't miss out. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, Thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad, cinematic crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you are wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, email at Dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com, or if you're old fashioned like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172. Philadelphia, PA, 19145. All of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com, under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Paul Bavian. Will you not let me arrange a seance? I think being a spirit would be rather thrilling, and I only hope someone gives me the opportunity to speak. Until next time, goodbye, film pals. This time.